up, everybody? My name is Moore Milo. And I'm Ross Signorelli. And this is Market Today. Thank you guys so much for joining us for episode 100. We have officially hit the three-digit mark. What a freaking great accomplishment. We are super stoked. Thank you so much for all of you who have kept up with us for the last 100 books. And uh, we are really excited to be here today. And we uh, honestly, uh, I can't say that I thought that I would be reading 100 books in a row week to week. I don't know about you, Ross. What are your thoughts? Never would have guessed it in a million years, to be honest. Yeah. Right? Like crazy. Absolutely insane that we're here. Um, and, you know, we're just really grateful that we took on this journey and we've learned so much in the uh, through the path. And we're excited for the next hundred books and the, the hundred after that and the hundred after that. So we're, we don't plan on stopping anytime soon. We hope that you guys pick up a book or two with us because it's been life-changing, truly life-changing. Um, and with that being said, let's kind of hop into what we got today. So first things first, you know, we read a book called Happy Money by Ken Honda. And, you know, we're going to get into that here in a minute. But before we get into that, uh, we have a very interesting split that's in the market that's coming up with NVIDIA. So, Ross, what are your thoughts on, you know, buying before the split, right? Because everyone always kind of has that conversation of, like, does it make sense to buy before the split? Should, should I wait and see what happens after the split? What are your thoughts? I mean, a lot of people will tell you to buy after the split. It really depends on what you're doing because there'll be a run-up of the price before something splits. But to be honest, and more and I, we've talked about this before in the past, you know, I never like to give people advice on when to buy things. I think it more so has to do with your strategy. So if you're looking to buy NVIDIA and you're saying, hey, I believe in this company for the next 5, 10 years, then buy it now. It doesn't matter if you bought it today, tomorrow, pre-split, post-split. You know, you just kind of want to get in. Um, because at the end of the day, what's the difference of, you know, five, even 5%, 10%? Like, it, you'll make it all back immediately if, if the stock goes in the direction you want. I think normally I buy, um, actually, it's kind of a mix. A lot of times I like to buy before the split just because it's exciting to watch the run-up and then you see it kind of drop down after the split. But um, I think the smart move is you're supposed to buy after, I believe, is what most people will tell you. What do you think? You know, it's very interesting. I feel like uh, at the end of the day, a split can't really influence you to buy a stock, right? Like, if you're planning on buying a stock because it's splitting and you haven't bought that stock yet, then, you know, what What significance does, you know, a stock saying, okay, we're going to split four ways give you? Um, you know, it's interesting because it, it, I've... Last two big companies that I'm now going through a group, through a split with um, were Tesla, obviously, and now uh, Nvidia, and I feel like it's just one of those ways for these companies to be able to give themselves a reason to be relevant, right? Um, now, listen, as someone that bought Nvidia a few months ago. Right, and uh, obviously there are some people out there that have held on to Nvidia for years and years and years and years. But unfortunately, I wasn't as fortunate to do that. Um, I think I'm going to win overall because of the split, right? Because I think it's going to stabilize at a place that's going to be significantly higher than when I, where where I bought in. Um, 
But I don't know. You know, to a certain extent, I feel like a split shouldn't really determine whether you buy a stock or not. Like you said, right? It should go back to your strategy and conversation of like, okay, well, let's look at NVIDIA as a company, right? Like, do you want to have a piece of a semiconductor company? Do you think NVIDIA is going to be on the, the cutting edge of the of semiconductors in, in the world, right? Like, you know, the Taiwanese con, uh, conductor company is a great conduct, uh, another great option, right? That you could be, you could be playing, playing ball with. Like these guys are top, top three in their, in their, uh, in their industry. You know, why are you choosing NVIDIA over the Taiwanese company, right? Like, so I don't know. I think it's uh, I think it's a it's a relevant question because I think that as things are becoming more and more uh, kind of mainstream, right? More and more people are getting into retail investing and, and retail trading. Uh, I think that we need to remember our fundamentals, and it's just a great opportunity to do that, right? And think about okay, let's think about the company and what we're buying into and what each stock actually represents as opposed to the current event that's currently happening for this company based off of their financials and what they've decided to do as a company. Yeah, and for me, honestly, what I'm really interested to see is I have no NVIDIA stock, but obviously I'm heavily invested in Apple, so that should show that there's a little bit of bias coming, even though I try to avoid it. I'm really curious to see what happens with you know, NVIDIA, we saw it with Intel, you know, this next wave of kind of microchips, these processors, graphic cards, because we just saw a massive boost when Apple left Intel after all their years together to finally produce their own chip, the M1 chip. And then they put it in the new MacBook Pros, MacBook and the Mac Mini. And, you know, more and I have talked about it, how there's just the power increase has been off the charts with these new chips that Apple's using. I mean, they're blowing everything away. It's a whole different infrastructure and architecture. Um, and honestly, I don't know if you know this more, so what Apple's been doing with this chip, right, which the next version is obviously going to be stupid powerful as well, but they've really taken, instead of having one type of chip for their computer, one type for their iPhone, one type for their big processors, you know, they're using one main chip and essentially, that's all that they're using. They're able to cut that chip in half if someone wants less power. So 16 cores versus like 32. They're able to use it all across. They can use it on every single product that they're making. So that's going to drive down the cost of production for them incredibly low. It drives down their cost of acquisition because they no longer have to buy these chips. Which means that they're going to have not only better margins on these because we all know Apple's not going to drop the price but they're going to give you better battery life, better performance, you know, and right now they're leaving a lot of people in the dust. So, you know, Intel really getting pushed behind when it comes to what Apple's pushing out. NVIDIA, obviously the leader when it comes to graphic cards and things of that nature, but curious to see because Apple's able to use a lot of their own stuff. They won't have to be using NVIDIA's graphic cards in the future now that they have their own chip. So interesting to see what's going to happen between NVIDIA and Apple and how are this is this next wave of new microchips that come out going to kind of affect the market? Because we're now in that spot where people are, are mimicking Apple. You know, Apple normally is late to the party, but they do it on purpose so that they can do it the best. You know, and like I said, the performance, the power, more knows. I, I have a Mac Mini that I bought, um, and it pretty much replaced. It was seven hundred dollars, and it replaced my thirty-five hundred dollar massive iMac. You know, which is crazy, but it's just so much more powerful. But it just doesn't seem comprehensible. So, I don't know. I think it's going to be really cool to see. I, I agree with you that 
the fact that they're doing this stock split is always partially to get, you know, some of those headlines stay relevant. But I think they're really trying to capitalize on, like you said, those retail investors who are really looking to get in on some of these. You know, our generation is built on internet technology. And then for a lot of the brand new retail investors, they're in there with the gaming. So if they own a computer, they own an NVIDIA graphics card, they love the brand, they trust the brand, this stock split is going to make it very appealing for them to try to get in and actually buy some of these um, shares, essentially. Because if you really think of how much someone spends on these graphic cards, you know, if that money was spent on NVIDIA stock in the last year, probably would have made them a good amount of money. So I don't know. I'm really, really intrigued. I'm really excited for NVIDIA. I think they're going to continue to do amazing things. But it is going to be interesting to see what happens after the split. So, I don't know. Well, like I said, more you you have uh, stock. Are you? Does this make you excited when you hear that this is happening? Absolutely, it makes me very excited because I just came off of the uh, the high of watching the split with uh, with Tesla, and I'm hoping that <laughs> that will go in a similar <laughs> manner. Uh, and with that being said, on that massive bombshell, a what if? Uh, let's go ahead and move into the book. <laughs> let's do it. So, so what did you think this week, Ross? It was pretty good. You know, this this comes from an author whose name is Ken Honda. Uh, after doing some research, he's the, you know, number one kind of personal self-help guru in Japan. So it's kind of interesting to see, I guess, a, a, an outside take, I would say, on money. Because I, I think we understand the difference in, in cultures. And I think this really... Um, kind of put it into perspective of how different cultures really look at money in different ways. So, you know, we'll dive into it in a second, but I would say, you know, 10,000 foot view, I thought it was pretty good. I don't think it was anything mind-blowing, but I thought it was uh, honestly pretty solid. What do you think? I've enjoy- I actually really enjoyed it. I've heard of his, um, I've heard of some of his ideologies and, and thought around money, and I, I actually liked it a lot. Um the idea of, uh, oh my goodness. Happy money? Well, no, not not happy money, but ha- how do they say it in, in Japanese? It's uh, arigato, right? Mm-hmm. You are, arigato your money, right? I believe, I hope, I hope I'm saying that right. But it, the idea is that you're thanking your money no matter where it's going or where it's coming from. and um, It's just a, a very... Gr- it's a very grateful way to look at spending money or receiving money or, you know, providing a service or selling a, a good. I, I found it very light and lovely, to be honest, as opposed to what most people kind of would think when you think about money. Very rigid, very structural, very, um, here's, this is the right way. And I think that Ken really brought the perspective of everybody has their own way of looking at money. And being successful doesn't mean that you have to... Being successful at communicating about money and, and being able to have a good outlook on money has nothing to do with having the same ideology as the other people around you that have uh, about money. But communicating and understanding each other's perspective about money will help you work together to make more of it and generate more. Um so I think he has some really cool uh, ideologies around commun- the community aspect of money and, and how we talk about money and how, you know, like partnership and how you deal with money in partnership and all that sort of good stuff. Uh, but moreover, I like how he broke down the two categories of assets versus flow. 
I like how he was able to really articulate uh, money as a whole and how you have passive and, and active money. You know what I mean? Uh, so I thought it was really valuable. I actually liked the book a lot. I would totally read it again um, just as a good reminder. Um, I really enjoyed it. I really did. Yeah, for me, like I said, the thing that I kind of kept going back to, and, you know, they talk in the book, I believe, I think it's like 75,000 is that like, not break even point, but that point of diminishing return, you know, when you hit 75,000 um, is where they say that, you know, you're not really gaining as much as far as happiness at 75,000, you're supposed to be in a very content level, obviously, depending on where you live, that number can definitely change. But I think it always brings up a good point, And we've heard it in books in the past is, you know, it's not about, you know, trying to make all this extra wealth. You know, a lot of people that are really in these unhappy states when it comes to money is because they're really trying to push to get the the biggest mansions, the biggest boats. They're really trying to buy a lot of things that they don't need, that they think are going to bring them happiness, when really that's not going to do much for them. You know, this book really talks about you can do a lot of different things to be able to view money in a positive light, as it sounds. You know, understanding that, you know, money can be used to bring joy to people and it shouldn't be something that you're constantly looking at and stressing over. So, I don't know, there were, there were a lot of, you know, different types of money. He also talked about different categories um, and certain money. I think there were money EQs where there was like a compulsive saver, compulsive spender. And I think the last one was compulsive money maker, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but it's interesting that you can kind of think of yourself and maneuver into one of these categories. But then what you can also do is, you know, you can be a combination. You can be a hoarder and a spender, someone who, you know, saves a lot only to spend it in big splurges, you know, like a lot of different ways, which I would probably say is closer to me. I don't spend a lot, but I like to save up for bigger things. And normally it's like an uh, events or something like that. Um, but I think that it's, it's important to understand who you are and how you view money and sometimes just getting that extra knowledge or that third kind of perspective looking in from the outside can be very valuable when you're trying to figure out, you know, okay, this is how I look at money. This is what I use money for. This is what I like to have money for. Um, and this is how I like to acquire it. So just taking a different sense than just, always looking at your bank account, feeling stressed, looking at your debt, your credit card, your student loan, whatever it may be. Because he's not going to tell you to go pay off your student debt or, or pay off your credit card, even though, you know, it would be good. It would free up your mind to focus on things that are really going to be helpful for you and really help push you to a new place. Um, but I don't know. It, it was it was interesting. I've never really heard someone talk about money this way. Um, and it only seems fitting that it comes from a Japanese author because it's really it brings a lot of Zen into a money conversation, which is very hard to do. So for me, like I said, definitely enjoyed it. It wasn't my favorite book, but I think it brings a very strong conversation that you can have with yourself that honestly, none of the other books we brought up, except for maybe, um, what's his name? The What's the other money book more? Um, Tony Robbins? No, very close. So the rich dad, poor dad. Um, oh, Robert Kiyosaki. Ones. Yeah, one of the other books that really looked at money in a different sense. Um, and I think that's important because a lot of us really are either raised or just our society. We all view money in a very simplistic manner. So I really enjoyed that about this book, that it could kind of help you open your eyes to different ways of viewing yourself and viewing money in general. 
Yeah, I totally agree with that. And guys, with that being said, kind of final thoughts. Uh, definitely recommended. I think probably uh, a really like pillar book. I wouldn't say it was a book that was like top 10 or something like that because it was very specifically about money mindset, um, which is kind of vague and all over the place, but it, I think it's really valuable. I think it's really, really a valuable book to read. Yeah, absolutely. I would say the same thing. It's definitely, you know, a valuable book. Like I said, we've read 100 books as of this week, which is an incredible feat. Um, and we really haven't had a book that was like this. And I think that's worth noting because we do see a lot of themes come up in these books where a lot of times we feel like things are repetitive, not for anyone's reasoning, but just because, you know, essentially we've we've read it. These themes are very common. So the fact that this is able to branch off and do something different, I think, brings that value um, to you as a reader. I completely agree. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Market Today. This was episode 100. We're really excited about that. Uh, my name is Moore Milo. I'm Ralph Sanarelli. This is Market Today, and we'll see you guys next week. Take care.